So grab your Bible. We're going to go ahead and turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, page 743 in the Bibles here. Let me say two bits of warning about today's message and specifically about this passage. Uh, First of all, you need to put a pen or something in this passage because I'm having you turn to it now so you're ready, but we're not going to read it till the very end of the message. So when we read it, we're almost done. Like you've survived when we get to the passage out of Acts chapter 2 in the Bibles. Uh, so go ahead and put something in there. Secondly, today's message is a little weird. And as a weird guy, if you know me, that's saying a lot because it's always a little weird, but it's a little more weird than normal. And what I mean by that is it's, there's a lot of complicated things to try to get into a simple package in roughly 30 minutes. So I'm going to need you, I'm going to need to try to speak a little more clearly than I, than I, and I spent a lot of time trying to get things clear and I'm going to need you to lean in a little bit and listen a little more carefully and we each should assume the other one's not going to do it. So you should assume I'm going to do a horrible job and really lean in careful and I'm going to assume you're not paying attention and try to be really clear and between the two of us, we should get that done. Okay, can we do that? All right, that'd be great. So Acts chapter two, page 743, that's where we're going. The, the bumper made it clear, the early church is what this series is going to be about. The, the, the early church turned the world upside down. But we're actually going to start in Exodus because I want you to read Acts 2 and hear the events of Acts 2 the way that the Jews in Jerusalem would have heard it. And to get you set up for that, I've got to take the message and go through Exodus, okay? So in Exodus chapter 14... Moses declares to the people that God was getting ready to do something amazing. Uh, They had just left Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh had told them to go, but after they left, Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his army after them. And so they've got the sea in front of them. They've got Pharaoh's army and chariots coming up behind them. They're in the middle, and the people are freaking out. And Moses, the strong leader, stands up in front of the people, and Exodus 14 says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Powerful words, by the way. If you're in a battle, those are powerful words. And moments later, God parts the Red Sea. The people crossed over on dry land. The Egyptian army followed in after them, wanting vengeance, wanting wanting bloodshed. And God released the water and eliminated the army. Now, I need you to get a a picture of that geographically, but also uh, time-wise. So let me try to set that up. So this is a picture from Google Maps of the Red Sea. This is not like some Bible app. This is just the Google Maps. You can do this yourself at home if you'd like. Uh, And this is the likely site where Moses said the words we just read. Now, you'll notice if if you're looking at it, there's no other site like that along the Red Sea. And if you zoom in, you can see how this site would hold the whole nation of Israel. I mean, look at Google Maps later. It's a unique site. There's nothing else quite like it. And and you can also see how this site would be terrifying. So they've just come through. You see that white line zigzags. That's a channel, a ravine through the mountains. And they've come through that as a large group. And as they're coming through, here comes Pharaoh's army behind them. So they're coming out onto the beach, onto that area. And here comes Pharaoh's army down the back. And they're completely hemmed in. Would have been terrifying. Now today, this is a street view from Google. It's kind of a resort area today. Go ahead and put the next screen up, if you will. It's kind of a resort area. Um, Beautiful beaches and picturesque mountains and all of that. But you can still see, this is a street view picture from Google, the channel where the Israelites would have emerged out onto the beach. If you zoom in, you can see it even a little closer. I mean, it would have been terrifying. Coming out through that ravine, 
with the army coming up behind you and nowhere to go because the, the Red Sea's in front. So they cross the Red Sea at that spot, and then they make their way down to Mount Sinai, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. So hold on to that idea for just a second. We'll be there. That's the geography setting you up, but let me give you some timeline stuff because the Bible is very specific about timelines. Now, if you're not a, a historical, heady person, this is going to be a little headier than normal. That's okay. I'll try to make it clear. Just stay with me. There's a real clear application that matters whether you believe in the Bible or not. There's a real clear application that matters to you at the end of this message, and I want to get to that. And we'll be very specific about timelines because the Bible is very specific about timelines. And I think there's a really important reason why that even Moses, when he's writing this down, didn't understand. Okay, so you have the Passover. That's in conjunction with the 10th plague. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to talk about that. So if you're not familiar with the, the plagues of Egypt or the 10th plague specifically or the Passover celebration that happened, it's at Exodus 12. You can look at that later. We don't have time to dig into a lot of that, but let me give you an idea. So they, they celebrated that the death angel was going to come to every home in Egypt and those who put blood along the doorpost, the death angel would pass over that house and in the same way, uh, that he would let them live, and so they called the Passover, where God passed over them and they didn't experience the death. Exodus 12 will give you more details. You can look at that later. So when the angel came to those houses that were covered by the blood, he passed over them, and they celebrated that because they've been passed over. It's a, it's a huge event. And Jesus, later, 1,400, 1,500 years later, Jesus uses this celebration of the Passover. As he and his disciples were celebrating as good Jewish followers, as they were celebrating the Passover, he transitioned the Passover into the Last Supper, which we celebrate as communion. We did that just a minute ago, where he was the perfect lamb, and he was going to shed his blood, did that hours later, and that blood being shed would cover over the sins of his people. And so God, when we all face death, God would pass over us and we wouldn't be destroyed. It's a beautiful picture. If you're not familiar with it, Exodus 12 is a great uh, thing you can do later on your own. So after the Passover, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh relents. That was enough. It, it kind of broke his, his pride. And he said, you can go. And they march out towards the Red Sea. We covered all of that. Okay? So after they cross over at the Red Sea, it takes them 40 days to get to Mount Sinai. The Bible is very specific. It was 40 days. I'll show you why in just a minute. 40 days. When they arrive at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain to see God. But before he leaves the people at the base of the mountain to go up on the mountain, he tells them to consecrate themselves, to prepare themselves for three days. Again, they probably may not even know what the, the, the dates were for, but this is important for you. And he gives them three commands. So three days, three commands. So the first command was to wash your clothes, which I just think is funny. These guys have been walking through the desert for 40 years. They were kind of funky, long, dusty journey. You got to wash yourself. You're, you're, you stink. We're going to meet in six days, in three days. So get cleaned up. Second thing was to abstain from sexual relations because they've been on a long, dusty journey. Focus here, boys. Stay with me. Stay uh, no sexual relations. And then third, prepare to meet God. So wash your clothes, abstain, and prepare to meet God because God said at the end of three days, I'm going to come down and we're going to meet together. The Bible says that at the end of three days, God descended in the cloud on the mountain. There was thunder, there was lightning, smoke, earthquake, and the cloud remained there on top of the mountain. It sounds to me like continuing to lightning, continue to have smoke, continue to have uh, fire for six days. 
Now, I'll show you why the Bible is so specific and why I'm going into all this uh, ticky stuff in just a minute. But for six days. And then on the seventh day, God speaks to, the peop- speaks to Moses and he gives Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, written on tablets of stone. And the Jewish people celebrate this event, God coming down, all of those things around that, in conjunction with the festival of Shavuot. Now, if you ever get put on Jeopardy, you will win money with Shavuot. No one knows that but you now. It's the Hebrew word. It simply means weeks. That's the definition, weeks. The festival of weeks, sometimes we call it. That's the English way we say it, but it's Shavuot. That was how the Hebrews would say it. So Shavuot, just stay with me. I promise this is going somewhere. Shavuot is at the culmination the day after seven full weeks. So you have the Passover, seven weeks, seven sevens, and then the day after the seventh week, you have Shavuot, the festival of weeks. So you with me? So you have Passover, seven weeks, Shavuot. I I promise this is going somewhere. So this time happens every year in the springtime, and it coincides traditionally with the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. So the Passover would happen, they would celebrate that, as the, the Jewish people would celebrate that, years after Moses, and then they'd have seven weeks of harvesting all their grain, all the barley, all the wheat, and at the end of the seven weeks, they would celebrate that the day after with Shavuot, representing the end of the harvest. And God told them very specifically how to celebrate Shavuot. They would bring in, in honor of the the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, the grain harvest, they would bring in two loaves of bread that they made from that grain. So barley, wheat, bread, they would bring that in, And they wouldn't destroy them. They wouldn't throw them on a fire like a lot of times uh, sacrifices were done. They would act, it's called a wave offering because they would wave it in front of the altar just as a a gift to God. I'm guessing maybe it smelled good, so it's hot, like it smells before before God. And then they would give the bread to the priests uh, and the priests would eat that bread. That was was something they used to provide for themselves at the end of the the wheat harvest because they weren't farmers, they were priests. It would be like a transition, it would be like, uh, a good Christian person going to, you know, Texas Roadhouse and getting some rolls and waving it before the Lord and then bringing it to the church staff. Just, it's just a thought, but a modern translation. <laughs> rolls from Texas Roadhouse, wave it before the Lord as a gift to the staff. Just an application, a thought for you to con- consider this afternoon. Okay. Now, some of you may be wondering at this point, what in the world does this have to do with the early church? What does this have to do with the video we played at the beginning? I, I'll, I'll get there. Just trust me a hair longer, and we'll, you'll see where it's going. I had somebody tell me in between services, this message is like finding Nemo. Like you search and search and search and search and search, and then you realize, oh, oh, that's where we're going. Okay, so just stay with me. Nemo's coming. All right, so centuries later, Jesus, I told you a minute ago, used this celebration, the Passover, to, to institute the Last Supper, what we call communion, where Jesus' blood covers our sins. We celebrate he passed over death, all of that. With that in mind, I want you to notice the parallels, not just between Passover and communion, but the parallels between this Moses story and this Jesus story, which happened 1,400, 1,500 years later. Now, just to give you perspective, 1,500 years ago was like the year 500, 1,400 years ago, like the year 600. This is a long time ago, and yet the Jewish people would have had their mind blown when they saw what was happening in such close parallel. I want to show you. So you have Moses leading the people from Egypt immediately after the Passover. Jesus crucified immediately after the Passover. Those things are in parallel. Forty days later, Moses ascends Mount Sinai to ascend to God. Forty days later, Jesus climbs the Mount of Olives and ascends up to heaven. 
If you're a note taker, this is the section or you can take a picture when you get done. Uh, when we fill the screen in just a minute. Then, then for the next 10 days, the people consecrated themselves before God to wait for the voice of God. And there was fire and smoke as God prepared to descend. And for the next 10 days, the disciples devoted themselves to prayer and community and before God spoke to them also with fire, tongues of fire, at the day of Pentecost. At the culmination of that, Moses brought them the law. Jesus brings us grace and truth. The Gospel of John describes it this way. John 1.17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Even the word Pentecost literally means 50th. Pentecost is the Greek translation of the word Shavuot in Hebrew. It's a parallel. And the Jewish Christians would have immediately recognized that. I mean, I really believe, the book of Acts says that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And I think part of it was this stuff here. I think part of it was the, the priests were going, wow, that is the same thing that God did before to bring us the old covenant, the law, and now God's doing that again. There must be some significance to this. We better search into this guy, Jesus, and change the world. With that picture in mind, right there, I want to give you three quick parallels. Let me let you know where the rest of the message is going since it's so weird. I want to give you three quick parallels between the two events, between Moses and Jesus, and then we'll finally read the passage for today out of Acts chapter 2 that I had you turn to. I'll make a quick, couple quick thoughts and, and we'll be done, okay? All right, parallel number one is the parallel of covenant. In the Old Testament, Moses led the people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. That was, that was what this event signified. In the New Testament, Jesus leads us from slavery and sin to freedom in Christ and through the, through the Lord a relationship with God. Moses' covenant gave us the law to change us from the outside in. Jesus' covenant came through forgiveness and his spirit uh, to change us from the inside out. This covenant came by Moses descending down the mountain with the words of God and tongues of fire descending down from heaven onto the apostles to give the words of God. Moses' covenant was written on tablets of stone. What about the covenant that we get in the New Testament? What was it written on? Well, Jeremiah tells us, Jeremiah 31 says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was like a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I need you to know that God wants to be in a covenant with you. I mean, this is very personal. We're in the, the age when God wants to be in a covenant with you. He wants to be like a husband to you. He doesn't want to be this distant creator who you have no relationship with. He wants to be a, in an intimate, day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship with you. He wants to write his ways, not on some tablet of stone that you can put in an, in an archive or museum. He wants to write his ways on your mind. So you think different. He wants to write his ways on your heart so you feel different. He wants to be a spouse to you. He, that's what he wants for you. And you know, like a marriage, which is a great example of covenant, you have to choose at a moment to, to commit to that kind of covenant. You know, today we have, you don't just have dating and then married, dating and engagement and marriage. You have, you have like hanging out, we're friends and we're hanging out and now we're dating and now we're thinking about dating. We're not, I don't know, it goes, but eventually you're going to get to marriage and you can't just slide your way from hanging out to marriage. There has to be a moment where you each decide this is something we're committing to. 
You have to have a declaration. And if you're not in a covenant relationship with the Lord, there has to be a moment of, of declaration. You don't just slide your way into that kind of a situation. If you don't know if you're in a relationship with the Lord, I don't want you to leave here today. And I don't mean that any kind of disrespectfully. I think it's, it's easy in our culture to say, well, I mean, I kind of grew up thinking God was God and grandma was a Christian. I don't, I'm not sure if I'm in a covenant with the Lord or not. Don't leave here today with that unsettled. Like there, there may not be a single issue in the world more important for your life than you being clear about that one, whether or not you're in a covenant relationship with the Lord. So if you're not sure, I, I want you to figure that out before you leave today. You know, God wants to write his ways, not on tablets of stone, but on your mind and on your heart. He wants to be like a husband to you. The first parallel is the parallel of covenant. The second parallel, this is, this is going to be one, the hardest of the three to follow. So I'll do my best. You do your best. It's the, it's the parallel of bread. And I think it's really cool, not just because of Texas Roadhouse. So um, the, the, the original setting, if you remember, was the, the harvest, the barley harvest, the wheat harvest. So they would start the wheat harvest during the festival of weeks. At the end of that, they would have Shavuot. And the people would bring bread before God, and they would wave it before God, and they would, they would give it to the priests as a gift, just like you're going to give Texas Roadhouse rolls to me later. Just, just that same idea. Okay, so the bread was made up of two main ingredients, grain, barley or wheat, and also yeast. And this is a picture that I think the New Testament, that Jesus, the gospel, reflects on. Now, grain represented the, prov- the provision of God. God made the barley plants grow, or the wheat plants grow, provision of God. Yeast represents, and I don't have time to explain this, so just trust me if, you don't, if you've not heard this before. Yeast in the scriptures represented sin. Uh, like communion, the, the, the bread we eat is unleavened bread. There's no yeast in it, and the reason is because it's without sin. It represents being without sin. Just trust me, that's true. So you have two items, two loaves being presented to God, waved before God, of grain and yeast, so God's provision and sin. That's the two the kind of representation pieces, and there's two of those. And so God provides for us, and we have sin in our life. That's a clear picture. And so in Moses' day, it, it represented the, the bread that God had provided with the bread and the yeast. In our day, it, it represents also a harvest, and God wants us to bring back to him these two sinful items as a presentation back to God, as an offering before God. In Jesus' day, who's that covenant available for? It's available for the Jews. That's always been true. But now because of Jesus, it's also available to all the non-Jews, the Gentiles, all of us. It's now available to us. So you have these two items, Jews and Gentiles, that God is wanting us to bring back as a present, as an offering, back to him. Two sinful groups, because of this moment, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, because he's willing to pass over, because God is willing to pay the price. Now both groups, Jews and Gentiles, can come back as gifts, offerings, back to God. And at at Pentecost, God said, because of his death and resurrection, the harvest is open to everyone. I hope you know that. The harvest is open to everyone, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, no matter what what choices you've made, you've never gone too far from God. He's opened up the door to everybody. And we, his followers, are expected, like they were in those days, to collect a harvest and present it back to God and turn this world upside down. 
Look how Jesus lived his life. I want, I want to show it to you. Matthew 9 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Notice Jesus' model here. Proclaim the good news and heal the brokenness in the world. Proclaim the good news and heal the brokenness in the world. He always did both. Lots of churches want to do one or the other. Jesus always did both. Lots of Christians get excited about one or the other. Jesus always wanted to do both. Our life should be characterized, because he told us to follow him, our life should be characterized by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the light of the world, and also helping heal brokenness in our world. That's how Jesus lived his life, and he told us to follow him. We've got to live our life that way. It's tempting to do one or the other, or neither. Jesus consistently did both. We should consistently do both. The next verse, Matthew 9, 36, says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The ways Jesus did life led him to have more compassion on the crowds. And the crowds weren't always just good people. The crowds had people who were trying to follow God, people who were doing it well, people who weren't doing it well. The crowds had people who were messed up, just like any crowd would. And yet Jesus looked out at the crowd, full of all different kinds of people, and his main motivation, his main uh, emotion was compassion. Which I think is a good heart check for us. It's a good heart check for me. When I see people, do I often have compassion? Does the way I live my life lead me to have more compassion on more people as I become closer and closer to God? Or does it lead me to get hard-hearted towards people? Does it lead me to to miss even seeing people. Sometimes I get so busy, I don't even see the needs of people because I'm busy with whatever it is that's before me. Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion. If you, if you don't have compassion, then maybe we've under, misunderstood the role of the church in the world. Maybe we've under, misunderstood why the church even exists because we, his followers, should be a people, a place that sees the world with lots of compassion. Next verse. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's that idea of harvest again. People being brought back to God. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You and I, if you're a follower of Christ, we must be praying for the harvest. Jesus commanded us to pray for the harvest. We must talk to God about people that we love that do not know him. We must then tell people about the gospel, but never get the order of that confused. Never tell, we should never talk to people about God before we first talk to God about them. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Notice, notice the gap here. The gap is not in the size of the harvest. The gap is not in God's ability to help you bring in the harvest. The ga- gap is not in God's desire to have that harvest presented to him as a wave offering. The gap is in his followers being willing to go collect the harvest. We're the gap. I'm the gap. If you pray that prayer... You can't pray that prayer unless you're willing to be the answer to that prayer. I can't pray that prayer unless I'm willing to be the answer to that prayer. And it's time for us to do that. The harvest is plentiful, but there's few willing to harvest. So the first parallel is covenant. The second parallel is the offering of bread, the harvest. The third parallel is fire. 
The third parallel is fire. I, I want us to look back at the maps for a second because this is fascinating. There's one detail I, I didn't bring out. So Moses and the people go from the Red Sea to the Mount Sinai. That's modern day. There's some debate uh, among smart people about where the actual mountain is. There's two main sites people look at. This is probably the, the, the minor choice among the two. It's not the most popular. I think this is the correct one. I could be wrong. Moses may correct me when I get to heaven, but then I won't care at that point. But I think it's, I think it's it. If you want to look online, you can search for this. It's Mount Jabal Makla. Jabal Makla, M-A-Q-L-A. You can look at that later. Um, it's hard to see from aerial pictures because it's kind of, you know, but you see it, notice how it's a little bit darker right there. Like it's a remote area. We, we don't have street view on Google for it or anything like that, but you can tell if you look close that the top of the mountain is a little bit darker. If you zoom in, it helps a little bit, but it's still kind of hard to see, but it's just a little bit darker. Here's a picture somebody put on Google Maps. Do you notice how the rocks are darker? There's like a blackened, like a, almost like a basalt type rock on top. Here's another picture online from another angle. The, the top of the mountain looks scorched there. Do you notice that? It looks exactly how it would look if Exodus was correct that, that God descended on the mountain in fire and hung out there for six days. And that's exactly how the mountain would look if Exodus was legitimate, which I think, I think is the answer. Both of these stories, these parallel stories, involve a, a great... Uh, picture of fire. You know, fire can be a wonderful thing. Uh, the fire from the sun makes our universe even work. If the sun just shut down, somebody could power off the switch or whatever, like everything stops in a matter of, of moments. Uh, energy from the sun provides everything for our planet. Uh, the fire in a hearth on a cold morning, if you have a fireplace going, you can see that. That's exciting. Or like this time of year when the nights are cool and, and friends gather in their backyard and have a fire pit out there and people get around and you know, have hot dogs or s'mores or whatever. That's a, that's a, it's a wonderful thing. It draws people together. It's, it's, a, it's a great, comforting deal. But if your house catches on fire, it's horrifying. If a person catches on fire, even worse, fire can be horrible and scary. Fire can be horrible and scary, or it can be comforting and wonderful and warming. And the power of God is represented in these two accounts, Moses and Jesus, as fire. And like fire, God's presence can be comforting or horrifying, depending on your situation. And we've missed this sometimes in our, in our day. When Moses comes down from God, he met with God. When he comes down from God with the tablets of stone in his hand, the people's sin at the base of the mountain, you can read it later on, is so exceedingly obvious and that day, Exodus 32 tells us, that day 3,000 people died because of their sin and because of the consuming fire, the judgment of God. 3,000 people were killed that day because of their sin. The judgment of God can be a horrifying picture. Uh, extra credit for you this week, if you read Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about the fire of God and that, that image in, in Moses' day and what happened. Horrifying. When, when you and I are bearing the weight of our own sin... The fire of God is a scary, horrifying thing. Which is why the Passover is so huge. It's why Jesus' offering is so huge. Because when, when Jesus' blood covers our life and covers our sin and forgives us of our sin, then death, that horrifying picture of fire, passes over us. And now the fire of God is a warming presence, a comforting presence. It draws us together in humble celebration before our powerful, almighty God. 
So at Mount Sinai, 3,000 people, when Moses came down the mountain, 3,000 people yielded their life because of their sin. And Acts 2 says that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people yielded their lives, but in a wholly different way. Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I want you to look at that verse for a minute. That verse is powerful to me for for two reasons. First of all, just the obvious idea that the 3,000 number parallel. This is 1,500 years, 1,400 years apart. It's fascinating to me that God can, can move the events of history to that kind of precision over that kind of time. That's just a... Powerful picture of me. 3,000 people dying in their sin. 3,000 people dying to their sin in baptism. It's a beautiful picture. But not only is that fascinating for that reason, it's also fascinating because it gives you a picture of the early church. 3,000 were added to their number that day. In those days, they only counted on census things men. They didn't count women typically. So that's 3,000 men were baptized. Very likely there were 3,000 women, probably three to 4,000 kids. And that doesn't even count the California Christians moving to Jerusalem trying to find a church. I mean, it doesn't even count them. That's 10,000 brand new believers on the first day of the church. If you've come to believe that the church is designed to stay small, if you've come to believe that the church is designed to stay static, if you've come to believe that the church is designed primarily to take care of those inside of the church, you may have misunderstood the gospel, but you've certainly misunderstood the book of Acts. Because this church was launched in weakness and confusion. This church didn't have its act together. They didn't know what they were doing. They were just clinging to the hope in God. But this church was filled with the wonder of God and was immediately bursting at the seams with thousands of people flocking to see what God was doing in their day. Now, if you're keeping track, that was the introduction. (laughs) So you're welcome. We'll be out of here by 2.30. I'm just teasing. We're almost done. Grab your Bible, Acts chapter 2. I think now we'll hear this like the Jews in Jerusalem that day would have heard this event. Okay? Acts 2, verse 1. So when the the day of Pentecost came, when Shavuot came, when the festival of weeks was over and Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Ferga and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. That's the whole world in their day. We all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice, addressed the crowd, and the world would never be the same. God literally turned our world upside down. Starting there when Peter stood up, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. In the next couple of years, 
Hundreds of people are going to give their lives to Christ at this church. I'm not a prophet. I've not been given a, a vision from God, but I'm quite confident this is true. In the next couple of years, hundreds of people are going to give their lives to Christ at this church. If you don't know the Lord, I want to introduce him to you. That's why we do what we do. He'll turn your world upside down. Now, I want you to know I've been praying for you, and I don't wish ill on anybody. So this is, if you don't know the Lord, I've been praying for you, but it's not been that you have harm, but I have been praying a very specific prayer. Over these next couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, different ones of us in different backyards having get-togethers, and we're going to be around a fire, and normally we're going to be saying, man, this is so great. It's just, so, it's just comforting. Fire's great in the backyard. And if you don't know the Lord, I've been praying that you can't enjoy it. Because when you're there, you will remember this moment and how the fire represents the presence of God, which can be very comforting, but it can also be a horrifying picture. And I don't want you to be deluded by what life is telling you, by these moments when we're surrounded by uh, great situations and a great community and good jobs and a free country and this great backyard fire. I don't want you to be deluded to the idea that the, eventually... We'll all stand before God and we're either going to deal with our own sin on our own or death will pass over us because of what Jesus has done. And I don't want anybody to be deluded by that. So I've prayed that you can't enjoy the backyard fire until you, can't t- until you take care of the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, I want to introduce you to him. If you know the Lord, we need your help. Because in the next couple of years, hundreds of people are going to give their lives to Christ at this church. And they're going to need love and support and encouragement and prayer and teaching and training and comfort and help. And we're going to need your help. If you know the Lord, that's why you're here. And we won't ask that you join us. Because God's getting ready to turn our world upside down. And we've all waited long enough. Why don't you bow your head and let me pray for you. God, I pray that there wouldn't be a single one of us. The the gift of tongues that happened that day, I think, was a gift of hearing. You told each of them what they needed to hear in their own language as the people spoke. And God, I pray that the, the gift of hearing would happen today. That you would take this message and you would speak to the mind and heart of every one of the people here. And I pray, God, there wouldn't be a single one of us who leaves at peace, not yielding to whatever it is that you've asked. If there's anything that I've said that's not what you, just take that away. But God, anything that's from you, I pray that we wouldn't be able to be at peace until we settle that, commit to whatever it is you've asked us to. Help us, Lord, as we celebrate what Jesus has done, the centerpiece of all of history, and how you've used that to change our world, and to change our lives. We honor you now in his name. Amen.